Welcome back to Finest Hours, the show where we share amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. It's been a while since our last episode, but I am once again joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our executive producer, Skylar Williams. Great to be back, y'all. What's up? Any maybe exciting news? Skylar's a dad. Yeah, I'm now a father and that's why (laughs) we've had such a long break. (laughs) <laughs> so finest uh, hours podcast provides a great paternity leave <laughs> yes it does <laughs> got paid millions no no you don't get paid you just don't have to do a podcast <laughs> this is true uh you get a break from me and hayden which is Probably which is needed. good enough which is all i need yeah <laughs> oh man we celebrate moments like that on finest hours I mean, not really, because I didn't really like send you anything or anything. But <laughs> no, you sent me a uh, a congratulations sent me a, text, a, a fruit basket on text. Oh, that's right. I did send you a virtual I, fruit basket. I think I have five more months until it shows up. That's what Hayden <laughs> said. So we come back today with a very special story because this is this week marks the one year anniversary of the Finest Hours podcast. Boom. It's been a year. That's one one full year. And today's story is one that we've actually wanted to do since we started the podcast. It's also been our most requested episode. And by that, we mean that two people in Skylar's family requested this episode. (laughs) Multiple times. (laughs) So, So seriously, people, please share your stories and um, we can share them with other people. But we couldn't be more excited about this week's episode and sharing today's story on our first birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, guys. Happy birthday to us. Our story today is about Louis Zamperini. It's an incredible World War II survival story that seems too outrageous to be true. The story of Louis Zamperini is one that embodies the spirit of what we aim to do since launching our podcast, and that is to inspire and bring new perspective to you from the lives of others. So, let us begin. Let's begin, Jinx. (laughs) You owe me a soda. (laughs) (laughs) Or however it goes, I can't remember. Only if someone breaks the jinx by talking... You're released from your jinx if someone else says your name. Oh, yes. yes. These are the (laughs) these are the schoolyard rules (laughs) of the jinx. Love it. Okay, so so to jump in, we first learned about Louis Zamperini because there is a fantastic book that is written about his life. Pretty much everybody in my family's read it, so it's kind of a popular story among us. And so I told my wife, that we were going to be talking about Louis Zamperini, and I asked her what she remembered about him. And the first thing that she mentioned was that as a kid, he would steal pies 
He's a pass dealer. That's what she remembered? <laughs> that was the first thing she said. I think she started with what she remembered chronologically. It was very funny. It was a great conversation. And the book that Hayden mentioned, titled Unbroken, um, really good book. We highly recommend it. It's where we are taking a lot of these accounts. Um, Unbroken by Lauren Hildebrand. And for those people that don't like books, it's also a movie. Also titled the same thing, directed by Angelina Jolie. And she does an awesome job. It's a great, great movie. So check it out. So Louis as a kid was a bit rambunctious. He was a pie stealer, but not only that. He started smoking cigs at age five, drinking alcohol at age eight, and he was frequently escorted home by police after a day of stealing pies and other food, trinkets, and alcohol. He would typically be covered in mud, oil, blood, and bruises. That's my kind of that's my kind of childhood right there. Yeah, right. You were an angel because child. because that happened to you. <laughs> no, I just watched as other kids did that. <laughs> So as we learn, Louis is pretty much an untamable son of Italian immigrant parents. Um, he spent most of his days terrorizing the town, stealing and hiding his loot um, and caches around town. His father was always having to pay for damages to the town, even though his paycheck ran out before the week's end. And so his parents worked really hard, especially his father and Louis, as a young boy, didn't really understand that. And so he did what he did and he ran through town, beat up kids, beat himself up, stole. Got in trouble with the police a lot. Yeah. He was picked on a lot as a kid due to his ethnicity and was bullied severely. During this time, it's an era where Italians are not very well liked by Americans but when he was when he was getting beat up, he never cried or yelled for help. And his sister said that you could beat him to death and he wouldn't say ouch or cry. He would just put his hands up by his face and take it. So when he got bored of stealing, he started to prank the people in the town. Um, he would hide in trees and shoot spitballs at girls. He would rig booby traps and he would constantly be sent to the principal's office. The kid was fearless until one day a pilot took him for a ride in an airplane. The flight surprisingly terrified him. And after that, he wanted to do absolutely nothing with flying or being a pilot. That's called foreshadowing, folks. He had an older brother, Pete, who was like a golden child and was everything that Louis wasn't. He was a proper young gentleman. He was very polite popular with the girls, beloved by adults in the town, and sound-minded enough for his parents to consult him on difficult decisions, even though he's only 20 months older than Louis. He was also a great athlete, the type of boy who would wake up at 2.30 in the morning to run a paper route and would put all of his money into savings, which would then just be swallowed up uh, when the Great Depression hit. He even once saved a girl from drowning. And Louis never listened to anyone except for Pete, who he idolized. Uh, and when Louis entered high school, the mischief continued. After sneaking kids into a gymnasium for basketball games, he was summoned once again to the principal's office, who punished him by not allowing him to participate in, in athletic programs. But Louis didn't really care because he didn't have an interest in sports. But when Pete heard about it, he stormed into the principal's office and told him that Louis just needed attention and he couldn't get it in the form of praise, so he resorted to mischief. 
So he asked the principal if he could allow himself to live with allowing Louie to fail. And the principal caved in and decided to make Louie eligible for athletic programs. That's how you get them, folks. So Louie's older brother, Pete, was a star athlete. He graduated with 10 varsity letters, three in basketball, three in baseball, and four in track. And he had broken multiple school records. Pete thought that Louie could put his getaway speed to good use on the track. And in his first race, Louie lost miserably. When he heard people teasing in the stands, he was so embarrassed that he ran and hid under the bleachers. And from that day on, Pete was all over Louie, training him to improve upon his natural ability. Louis hated it, but after finishing third in a race, he found the cheering of the crowd intoxicating. Pete pushed him every step of the way, and Louis found that his love of running grew. His mischievous ways began to die down because he was so involved with running. Louis exploded into the track scene, beating opponents by as much as a home stretch. Nicknamed the Torrance Tornado, he was smashing records. He won so many wristwatches. Those were given as trophies during the time. They still give wristwatches occasionally at track meets. Um, but so because of that, he began carelessly handing them out all over town. Uh, he was improving rapidly and became the fastest high schooler in American history, breaking the mile record, which would stand for 19 years. He then set his sights on to the 1936 Berlin Olympics. We're coming up onto the 1936 Olympics. I mean, to 2036. Wow. <laughs> and we're coming up on... <laughs> we're reversing in time. We're, com- we're coming back up on the 1936 Olympics. Take me back Olympics. to the days. <laughs> uh, 16 years later. Gosh, we're going to be old in 16 years. Um, so after accepting a scholarship to USC, he began obsessively training for the 1500-meter Olympic trials. Pete saw an opportunity for Louis to qualify in the 5,000 meters, though Louis hated the longer distance. But he did end up qualifying for the Berlin Olympics in the 5,000 meters after only running the event four times in his life. And at this, by qualifying, he was the youngest distance runner to ever make the team. What is the age requirement to compete in the Olympics today? I don't know. 16, I think. It actually That's depends on the sport. There's technically no age limit, but the, what is it? The International Olympic Committee. Committee. It might be that one. Anyway, it's specific to a sport. So 16 is the most common one. How old was he at the time of his qualifying? Do we know? So he was at USC. He would have been like 18. Solid. So, yeah, we would have been like 18. He would have been 14 in the 1932 Olympics. Such a shame he didn't make it. (laughs) Yeah, it's so relevant, (laughs) too. too. (laughs) It's a shame. All right, so the Olympic team took a luxury liner across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. During the journey, Louis ate so much free food that he gained 12 pounds by the the time he set foot in European soil. That was my favorite part of the book up to this point. I loved stealing pies. I loved that he was fast. I loved all of that. But the fact that he gained 12 pounds on a cruise ship, essentially, was like my favorite. I thought that was so funny. And ate the most out of everybody. (laughs) By by far, his consumption became legendary. A child of the of the Great Depression, and he goes on this luxury liner where 
I mean, they're, they're consuming so much food. It's ridiculous. But an outcast of sorts, he became friends with Jesse Owens, who would go on to be the star of the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games. Um, if you listen to our Black History Month special, we did a segment on Jesse Owens. So go ahead and check out that story because that's another one of our that's another one of our um, favorite athletic stories that we've done so far. Louis arrives in Berlin, and he had little chance of meddling in the 5,000 meters. The event had been dominated by the Finnish, and he was the youngest competitor in the field. So Louis had barely even qualified in the finals of the 5,000 meters. And in the finals, he was still unfamiliar with the long distance and set off with a very conservative pace. He fell to the back of the pack, and as he crossed the line after the 11th, there's 12 laps. After he crossed the line after the 11th lap, he recalled the words that Pete had once told him. A moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. Louis began a dramatic kick and was gaining ground so rapidly that the crowd began urging him on. Even Adolf Hitler in the stands took notice of the American's outstanding kick. Louis finished in seventh place as the first American to cross the line. His coaches were in awe. He ran his last lap in 56 seconds faster than any finishing lap in distance running history. The Germans loved the amazing display and Hitler, impressed with the boy's display of strength, requested that his minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, invite him to the booth to shake his hand, which is like another flashback to our Jesse Owens story in which he refused to shake hands with Jesse Owens or be seen with him. And so later during the trip, Louis actually gets drunk on some German beer back to his drinking days at eight years old. They were catching up to him. And so Louis was strolling with his friends in Berlin and he watched as Hitler and his entourage entered the Reich Chancellery. I don't know if I'm Very saying that right. Very good pronunciation. I mean, it's a little, it's a little stereotypical, but very good. <laughs> <laughs> Just working on the accent. Um, he noticed a Nazi flag near the doors that looked within reach. And when the guards had their backs turned, he tried to jump and snatch the flag. And he's drunk. So he jumps and he misses. He misjudges the distance. The guards turn around and see him and start barking at him and pursue after him. He's able to actually get the flag. And they hesitate when they see his Olympic uniform. Louis stopped and convinced them to allow him to keep the flag as a memento of the happy times he had in beautiful Germany. But remember, this is before Hitler kind of invades everybody in Europe. And so Louis doesn't really know what the Nazi flag stands for and and everything that's going to be happening. And so he really does think that this is going to be a good memento for him to take back to America. I just think it's funny that as he's drunk, he definitely goes back to, you know, being a child because he goes around stealing stuff again. From the Nazis, too. Like, (laughs) the audacity. (laughs) Some strong German beer. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is the center of the Berlin. This is, like... (laughs) Deep into Nazi territory at that time. This is literally, like, the heads... This is the building where the heads of state gather. So, after the Olympics, Louis continued to compete... And he always had this goal and he always talked about breaking the four minute mile. This was previously thought to be impossible, 
Louis traveled to Minneapolis where he would attempt to break the record. The night before the race, a coach from Notre Dame knocked on his door and warned Louis that he had heard rival coaches were ordering their athletes to sharpen their spikes and slash Louis during the race. Uh, Louis was like, whatever, that's garbage, and dismissed this. Halfway through the race, several runners boxed him in, and Louis couldn't break loose. The runner next to him deliberately stepped on Louis's foot, impaling his toe, while the runner ahead of him kicked his legs backwards, slicing up Louis's shins. A third one elbowed Louis so hard that he cracked his ribs. Louis finally broke free and kicked away from the assailants. Bloodied and bruised, he crossed the finish line frustrated. Louis, thinking he ran the race no faster than 4.20, had run the mile in 4 minutes and 8 seconds, the fastest NCAA mile in history, missing the world record by 1.9 seconds. Hey, racing? Racing does get like this occasionally. I remember when uh, Cromar got punched in the face. (laughs) (laughs) That did happen. Love racing. For those Four of you minutes. who don't think uh, racing is a sport, it is. It's like it's like boxing, but you're running all at the same time. Oh, dude! Like <laughs> people can't say that. People complain about running all the time. Like, yeah. If you want to find out how weak someone is, make them run. Make them run a mile. <laughs> it's true. Uh, four minutes and eight seconds. That is so fast. Louis returned to California to compete in track, attend college, and train for the 1940 Olympics, which were to be held in Tokyo. Uh, but these were canceled after Japan invaded China. The Tokyo Olympics were canceled? Hmm. Oh my god! Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Again? Man, uh, we gotta stop scheduling Olympics there. Bad <laughs> stuff always happens. <laughs> Uh, No more Olympics in Tokyo. The boy who was once scared of airplanes was drafted as a bombardier into the Army Air Corps three months before the attacks on Pearl Harbor. And life on base was pretty boring. The men were restless, but Louis continued to train. And one day he had a sergeant time him in a one-mile run, riding alongside him in a Jeep. And he clocked four minutes and 12 seconds in the sand. In the sand, people. He wasn't sea level. Come on, guys. Yeah, you know those beach runs where you're like, oh, that's so cute. Let's go run on the beach. And you make it like 30 yards and you're like, oh, that is not fun. This is not romantic or anything like that. It's miserable. Yeah, 412 in the sand. So not bad. Not a bad time. So impressive, honestly. So Louis was stationed in Oahu, where he and his crew successfully completed several bombing missions. He had to grow accustomed to men dying all around him. Men often often went missing, crashed, or were killed during bombing raids. So Louis had many close encounters with death, including a bombing raid on Wake Atoll, where he and his crew members were attacked by Japanese fighter planes. When they landed, they counted a total of 594 bullet holes in their plane which they called Superman. And it was like a miracle that they had survived. His pilot, Russell Allen, or as they called him, Phil, Russell Allen Phillips was a deeply religious man and an exceptional pilot, and his crew had a lot of faith in him that he could safely land anything. Didn't they, like, get back two hours after everybody else, and so they all thought that they were dead? 
I don't know. <laughs> he is. They were only mostly dead. <laughs> I don't know. They were kind of dead. What I think that? that's. Princess I think that's Bride. in the book. I can't remember. I mean, but there was so much damage to the plane that it makes sense that they would have been late. Though I mean, they lost. Uh, they lost their hydraulics, so they would have lost their brakes. And having to land without brakes is obviously sketch. Super sketchy. Just drop it right down. Land in the water. They lost Superman. And so one day, Louie and Phil were flagged down by a lieutenant asking for volunteers to help with the rescue mission. A B-25 had gone missing, and the lieutenant replied that the men could take a B-24, one less than a B-25 because it was much less than a B-25. <laughs> the plane was Actually, named the Green Hornet. <laughs> Actually, a B-24 is much larger than a B-25. Uh, but the quality is much less. <laughs> on, on this one, yes. Tell Specific- us why, Hayden. Specifically this one. This one was named the Green Hornet. Had they named it the Green Lantern, they would have been fine if they would have stuck with the superhero theme. Instead, they stuck with an insect. Bad call. Not even a murder hornet. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) It was a plane that pilots had been stripping spare parts of, um, and it had passed official inspection, though. Not a good plane. Which is garbage. Like, you know people are taking it, taking stuff out of it, but they're like, oh, I can still fly. You guys, go over there. Take it up in the air. It can still go. What's the problem? And so Phil and Louie volunteered. They were flying with an unfamiliar crew that day. Most of their former crewmates died in the raid on Wake Atoll. During the flight, someone had noticed... Uh, that the engines on the left side of the plane were burning much more fuel than those on the right. So Phil and the co-pilot began transferring fuel to the right side of the plane to even out the load. Suddenly, the plane started shaking, and the RPMs on engine number one dropped. And then the engine stopped. And it sounded like that. You hear that quiet pause, a little eerie? It sounded just like that. So Phil and the co-pilot called for the engineer to feather the engine, which means to turn the dead propeller blades parallel to the wind to minimize drag. The engineer feathered engine number two instead of engine number one, and both of the left engines were now dead. Phil tried to restart engine number two, but it wouldn't start, and Phil announced over the intercom, prepare to crash. So Louie, who was stationed at the back of the plane, was responsible for pulling the life raft at the last second before the crash. As Louie pulled the life raft, he had the thought cross his mind, no one is going to survive this. But he was wrong. On impact, Louie was jammed into the waste gun. The tail had broken off and electrical wiring wrapped all around him, binding him to the waste gun. With the plane sinking, Louis felt the weight of the ocean grow more intense. He passed out. A a moment later, he awoke. At first, thinking he was dead, he woke to total darkness. Inexplicably, he was freed from the waste gun and floating inside the fuselage. He felt his way around the fuselage and found a window. He kicked up towards the surface and pulled the carbon dioxide cylinders on his life vest, propelling him to the surface. He broke through the surface and after gasping for air, vomited out salt water, oil, and blood. He had survived the crash. Just like the old days again, covered in cuts, oil, and blood. 
Now he just needs to return home. So when Louis broke through, he saw Phil and their tail gunner, Francis McNamara, or Mac. None of the other men had survived. Louis had spotted two inflated life rafts and swam after them as fast as he could before they floated away. The rafts contained some provisions, a few chocolate bars, several half pint tins of water, a flare gun, sea dye, a brass mirror, fish hooks, fishing line, screwdriver, pliers, and a raft repair kit. The provisions were grossly inadequate and another two months, and then, and then had they crashed another two months, their plane would have been outfitted with a much more substantial provisions kit. As Louis, Phil, and Mac drifted away from the crash site, sharks began circling around them. They were so close that the men could touch them. The sharks rubbed their backs against the bottom of the raft, and the men were constantly aware of their presence. They fell asleep that night with the constant sensation of the sharks brushing against their backs. When Louis awoke that morning, he prepared to divvy out breakfast, a single square of chocolate each. When he looked in the ration sack, the chocolate was gone. In the night, Mac had eaten all of the chocolate, and Louis was absolutely pissed. He knew that they couldn't survive long without the food, but had told Phil and Mac that they would be rescued soon. He wanted to reduce panic. And that would be a really crappy situation. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, how pissed, how pissed would you be? Enough to Quite. kill a man. The next day, the men heard a plane in the air. It was a B-25 flying high overhead. It was not a rescue plane. It was actually just on its way to another island. Um, but Louis raised the flare gun and shot it in the direction of the plane. Mac opened a dye pack and poured it into the water, encircling the raft in vivid green. The men shouted at the plane, but the bomber kept going and never saw the men in the raft below. A few days later, they saw another plane. This time, it was flying low enough to be a rescue plane. But it was kind of a cloudy day that day, and the men in the rescue plane couldn't see the men below. And as the plane drifted out of sight, the men knew that this would be their last chance for an American rescue. And so they're in the middle of the Pacific, and they knew that the nearest set of islands were about 2,000 miles away. And if they drifted that direction and were lucky enough to see them, they'd have another problem, because those islands were occupied by the Japanese Empire. After the fourth day, the men on the raft ran out of water. Aside from Mac's binge of the chocolate rations, the men hadn't eaten since they'd last been on land. That night, Louis prayed for only the second time in his life. After one week, the men were declared missing. The search had be been abandoned. The news of Louis' disappearance appeared in every newspaper in California. His family, though frightened, had an unshakable feeling that Louis was still alive in the world. On the raft, the men's bodies were deteriorating. They were starving, thirsty, they were developing sores everywhere. They were sunburned, overheated, and weak. After three days without water, a rainstorm came, and the men had to find a way to capture the water. So they formed a bowl using canvas from the air pump sacks to collect the water. They would also open their mouths, allow for the rainwater to collect, and then spit it into the water bottles. First of all, that's kind of gross, but at the same time, like, it takes a lot of guts to not just drink that water. Save it for a rainy day. You mean a dry, sunny, hot day? <laughs> yeah, the opposite. <laughs> 
Now, about 10 days in, an albatross landed on Louis's raft. Louis slowly moved his hand toward the bird, and he did it so slowly, kind of like Drax from whatever that movie is, that he was invisible. <laughs> I love your narrative. <laughs> and he was invisible to that bird. And Louis clamped his hands around the bird's leg. He began flapping his wings and pecking viciously at Louis. He reached for the bird's head and snapped its neck. They tore the bird open, and a foul smell came from the bird. The men were gagging and couldn't get the meat into their mouths, but they now had bait that they could use for fishing. Louis attached a piece of the bird meat to a hook and dangled the fishing line in the water. The shark spit down on the hook, severing the line. They did this two more times until finally Louis was able to catch a fish, which the men ate raw. It was a pinnacle moment for Louis and Phil, who were enthusiastic that they could now catch food. But... Mac was indifferent. His will to live was fading. Phil recalled the story of a World War I pilot, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was stranded at sea after ditching the plane with his crew. Only one man had died and the others went mad. He and his crew survived for 24 days at sea. Louis, Phil, and Mac believed this was a survival record, but the actual record occurred in 1942 when three Navy men survived for 34 days after a plane crash at sea. Louis was more concerned about the men's minds than he was about finding food. They tried to keep sharp, recalling childhood memories, telling stories, playing trivia, and teaching each other songs. They would talk about Louis's family recipes. Louis used to walk the men through recipes his mom would make when he was a kid, talking through them in detail. And another week goes by, and the men's bodies continue to decline. Louis was able to catch another albatross, and catch another fish. Mac continued to fall into a deeper state of despair. As the days went by, the men were able to continue to catch more birds and fish. So six days went by without water, and Louis prayed that if God could quench his thirst, that he would dedicate his life to him. And the next day, it rained, and this would become a recurring pattern for the men on the raft. On the morning of the 27th day, the men spotted a two-engine plane in the distance. They shot a flare into the air, but the plane disappeared into the horizon. After a short while, it circled back. The men were elated, thinking of home and of food. As the plane approached them, they then heard a loud cracking sound overhead. The plane was firing at them. The men threw themselves overboard into the shark-infested waters. The bullets pierced the raft, and when the plane passed... They swam to the surface and climbed back into the raft. They were so weak that Louis had to help them both back in. The plane swung around again, so close that the men could see the red circles under the wings. The plane began firing again, and Louis jumped into the ocean. Phil and Mac, too weak to move, stayed in the raft under enemy fire. Under the water, a shark charged at Louis. He stiff-armed the shark in the nose, and the shark swam away. The shark charged again, and Louis again punched it in the nose. When the bomber passed... Louis pulled himself back into the raft. Phil and Mac were still alive. Bullet holes surrounded them. The bomber circled back again as Louis dived back into the water and fought off the sharks. Four more times, the Japanese strafed them before flying off into the distance. So when Louis pulled himself back into the raft, he was amazed to see Phil and Mac were not hit. Though bullet holes could be found all around them, even in the tiny spaces between the men, not one bullet had hit them. Phil thought, if the Japanese are this bad, we will win this war. One of the rafts was destroyed from the attack. The equipment on board was lost, 
The men now huddled together on a single raft, and that was too small for three men. The punctures were causing the raft to sink, um, and the sharks began leaping out of the water, trying to take bites out of the men on top of the raft. The men took turns pumping air into the raft and patching holes while the others fought off the attacking sharks. Fatigued, the men carried on for hours, rotating duties. They had to pump air into the raft all night long until they could patch up enough holes for the raft to hold air. The men were so exhausted, they could hardly pump the air back into the raft. For the remainder of their time on the raft, they had to pump air back in every 15 minutes during the day so that the raft would hold up. Later on, Mac continued to fade. One evening, Mac whispered to Louie, asking him if he was going to die. Louie didn't want to lie to Mac and told him he thought he would die that night. That night, Louie and Phil awoke to a deep, breathy sound, and Mac had died. The following day, Louie and Phil held a short ceremony and released his body to the sea, and the sharks let him be. On the 46th day, Louie and Phil spotted something in the distance, a green, gray mass on the horizon. It was a cluster of islands. Phil had believed that this was the Marshall Islands, and they could, they could smell... They could smell dirt. earth in the air. They could smell dirt and plants and wind rushing over the island and the smells of the island. And so as the men continued to drift towards the islands, they heard engines overhead. The islands were occupied by the Japanese. And as they rode towards the islands, a massive ship appeared in front of them. So the ship pulled up close to them, and on board, Japanese soldiers had machine guns pointed at them. Louis and Phil were taken aboard. To this is like the worst. This is like the worst possible scenario: being taken captive by the Japanese. The men had heard stories of the Japanese treatment of prisoners, especially after what they call the rape of Nanking in China when Japan invaded China and those atrocities were spread across, spread across the globe. So this was the worst, worst possible situation for the men if they were to be rescued. This is like the point where we say the easy part is over. And after all those trials on the raft and the, and the, and the plane crash, this is where things get really rough for Louis. But this is where we leave off because we will soon be releasing part two of the Louis Zamperini story. Soon to be followed up by part three through 19. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Honestly though, there is a lot you could talk about this. Uh, The book is fantastic. It goes over a lot of details that we kind of glazed over. We highly recommend it. The story is fantastic. You can only put so much details into a podcast episode, right? Eight-hour audiobook. Read to you by Braden Cromar, Hayden Hansen, and Skylar Williams. You don't want to hear it from us, but... No. So, thus concludes part one of the Louis Zamperini story. Join right, us guys. next time. <laughs> yes, there you go. That's perfect. That is it. That was that was it right there. <laughs> Just go from like worst possible scenario to join us next time. We'll hear what happens to the story of Phil and Louie in enemy hand. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you.